Hello, Melina. Thank you so much for being a guest on Einstein's Growth Podcast. It's such an honor to have you as a guest. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here as well. Amazing. So let's start with the most basic question. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Melina Palmer, and I'm an applied behavioral economist with a background in marketing and brand strategy. Uh, essentially, with applying behavioral economics, not how much you're, I'm not sure how much your audience knows about that already, but essentially it's the psychology of why people do the things they do and buy the things that they buy. And so what I do is I help people in business to understand how the brain actually works instead of how we think it should. And just to make it so communication is better and helping people to make good choices and, and things like that, uh, which I do through consulting, speaking. I have a book and a podcast and uh, teach at uh, Texas A&M University, all sorts of stuff, just sharing the knowledge of behavioral economics. Amazing. So, Melina, how did you find yourself in behavior science? You know, um, there's this moment I often talk about that when I got my undergrad, which, like I said, was in marketing, there was this one class that had a single section of one book that had just this little tiny bit about buying psychology. And I thought it was just the most amazing, fascinating thing in the whole world. And at that point, you know, I had said, you know, someday I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get a master's in this and kind of realized in that moment, I wasn't wanting to do an MBA, but like I was going to go get this. And I spent the better part of 10 years calling schools, universities, um, around the US and saying, you know, their business schools, do you have this? What's this? What's this program look like? And everybody said, you know, that's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Um, you know, you can create your own program if you want, which I was not interested in doing at the time. So I went into work and uh, just kind of kept my eye open while I was doing some other, you know, uh, innovation uh, programs and things like that. But I was a part of this one innovation program. It's kind of like a fellowship in the industry that I was in. And they brought in these researchers from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is their uh, behavioral economics wing, I guess, uh, under Dan Ariely. And they were talking about the research that they were doing. And I realized that is what I had been spending a decade looking for. And so I very quickly found myself a master's program and jumped right on in and, um, you know, realized pretty quickly that on the applied side, there wasn't much out in the world and things that were so obvious to me about how you could use behavioral economics for marketing and communication and all this other great stuff um, wasn't really out anywhere. And so figured, you know, why not me and started the podcast and here we are. Fantastic. So earlier you were talking about the difference between how the brain works and how we envision it or how we think it should work. Could you dive a little bit into that aspect, please? Yeah. So we all have brains and we like to think of ourselves as being very logical. We will often compare our brains to a computer and talk about how much processing power there is and how, you know, this intelligence sort of works that we sit and evaluate options. And there's so much that our brains can be doing, which is true. 
But we like to think that that conscious part of the brain is doing the bulk of the work. And while we all know, you know, we've heard the term of, of subconscious or maybe you say non-conscious or unconscious or whatever it is. And within the field, they talk about system one and system two, but I like to use these terms of conscious and subconscious. So, you know, you have a subconscious brain, you know, it's doing something, but you don't like to really think about how much it's actually doing. And what studies find is, you know, 95, 99, I've seen as high as 99.999% of what the brain is doing at any given time is on a subconscious level. And so the, you know, 1% is what's really being handled by the conscious brain. And if you're trying to communicate with that logical part of the brain, it's just so such a small amount of what's actually happening. And so when we think about, you know, everyone knows they should diet and exercise, and but we would rather, you know, watch Netflix and eat a giant bag of Cheetos in the moment. And we end up doing that, even though we know what we should do. And so there are all sorts of other aspects of behavior where this is the case. And what happened over time is that economic models didn't accurately predict the behavior of what people would do. Instead, it was what they should. And that's where behavioral economics came into play of having this mix of psychology and neuroscience and economics all coming together to find these common threads within the brain of how it actually makes decisions so that we can better predict behavior by understanding those rules of the subconscious. I love your explanation. And right now I have this idea, like it's more of a mantra that a lot of of people, when they hear about the subconscious mind and how it does make decisions and we only justify them with the conscious mind, a lot of people, they consider it to be manipulation. Like when they hear about stories, some of them are not even real in the marketing discipline. So what are your thoughts about that? I think that as with any knowledge that exists, anything can be used for evil by a bad person making a bad choice. Within the field of behavioral economics, there is a theory around nudging, uh, which is through concepts introduced by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And they also talk about choice architecture, which is essentially the way that choices are constructed and presented to people. And one of the things they say that I think is so poignant and important is that whether you think about it or not, really, you are a choice architect. So any way that you're presenting information, you are constructing a choice. And you might be unwillingly or unknowingly presenting options in a way that's going to make it so people are making a worse decision than they would otherwise. And so having a knowledge about how someone might be more likely to choose a specific option because something is the default or what shows up first in a list. You know, if you didn't realize that putting things in alphabetical order means that whatever's at the beginning is much more likely to be chosen and you've made it so something that was actually a very good choice is further down the list um, and people just don't get there. It's, it's just in your best interest and the person who's receiving the choices often to make it so that you can 
show them things in a way that's going to help them to make the best possible decision. The other really important thing about behavioral science, again, as we work in this land of nudges, like I said there with uh, that term from Thaler and Sunstein, of which free choice is always required to be considered part of behavioral economics. So if you are forcing someone to do something, you don't give them options, you don't leave the choice up to them, you are outside of the realm of behavioral science or behavioral economics. And I think that's where you can get into a really negative space. So because people can still make a good choice and we steer steer clear of dark patterns and sludge, as it's called, kind of the bad nudges uh, to not be manipulating people. But just I like to approach it from this way of helping businesses to get the the best possible points across to people just to help uh, their customers to make good choices. That's really interesting because when you were talking about it, I couldn't stop thinking about the default mode Mm -hmm. and how does past experience affect our choices. So what are your two cents regarding the idea or the concept that past experiences, context, environment, they shape our choices? Yeah, definitely they do. And so there's a one of the concepts that I think is really key within behavioral science is of priming. And this sort of whatever came just before a decision is made can very much impact the action that someone is going to take. And so there's, you know, one study that I really like that was talking about how people were working together in a room and they were, you know, put together with a group of people to work on a project. And in one instance, the people were much more cooperative than in the other. And it's because there was, were two different types of bags in the room. So in one case, there was a backpack in sight. In the other, there was a briefcase in sight. No one noticed it, you know, consciously realized that it was even there. But those in the backpack room were more cooperative, whereas those in the briefcase room were a little bit more, you know, argumentative or withholding. And it's because of those very literal associations that our brains have with those items. When you think about backpacks, you remember being in school and working on group projects, and it can shape your behavior and other decisions that you make. And so the thing that happened just before, again, is very important on the decision that is made. And also with any of this research, context is so important, which I really would say I preach constantly on the podcast and in working with my clients, because most none of the research is really generalizable. And in general, (laughs) you can't just pick something up and say, well, this worked exactly like this. And so I'm going to do exactly that same thing here. And it's going to work. Uh, if you're, you know, you pick up a study that's uh, about nurses in Germany and you're working with nonprofits in Japan, it, it's not necessarily going to be exactly the same across the board. Even if you are working with nurses in Japan or the U.S., it doesn't mean that it's going to be exactly the same. So that context of how you're looking to apply the information is very important. And so Maybe you were going to get to this question, but what I talk about often is that most businesses 
don't spend enough time understanding really the problem that they're trying to solve before we just jump into problem solving mode. So you say, oh, we need more customers. And then how do we get more customers is something then you start working on. But there's often a different problem that you should be working on, whether it's something deeper, it's a slightly different frame on something, this understanding of the behavior you're trying to shift. If you spend more time thinking about the problem up front to understand the behavior that you're wanting to shift, then you can construct these nudges or this type of work to help um, people naturally shift that behavior in working with those rules of the brain. You know, the parts talking about problems, that part was one of my favorite parts in your book. I remember it was in the part three and that was like, this is really fascinating because a lot of people, they jump to answers rather than asking questions. And Mm -hmm. only asking questions is not enough. We have to ask the right questions and look for the right answers, not only look for answers that appeal to our ego and we desire them to be true. And that was one of the aha moments for me when I was reading your book. Could you please give us for an example, like when you were saying, we have the idea, we need more clients, like how can someone, how can a business approach that idea of why do we need more clients and use behavioral science to truly understand the problem there and find contextual solutions that are based on psychology. I'm going to use Rory Sutherland's concept, finding psychological solutions to problems instead of focusing on trying to find in mechanical solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I often say that it's really easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. And when in business, we jump on the first thing that we think the problem is, Uh, Because our brains are programmed to think that we're better, smarter, faster than everyone else. And so whatever we look and say, ah, that's the problem. Let's go fix it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Optimistic bias. (laughs) Right. Yes. Uh, That you just really jump in on that. And most of us were taught that in school to, to be taught that there is always a perfect right answer to every question. And if you do question the question that there's something wrong with you that you're ornery or that you don't follow directions well or whatever it is. And so to go back to our natural sense of questioning and knowing that sometimes actually a question's purpose is just to help you get to the right question. So maybe you ask a hundred questions to find the one that is the most important for you to be moving forward with. I think a good example, like we say of the, you know, we need customers or, uh, so I do a process with my clients that is called question storming that I will walk them through and do trainings on with teams. So instead of working with brainstorming where you often have, um, the, you know, the question of how do we get more customers or how do we get the perfect product for these this team or this group of people or whatever it is. And then you start listing out a bunch of statement solutions. Well, we could, um, 
we could get uh, a new ad that we run over here, or we launch this, or we partner with this influencer or whatever, and you're trying to get more customers because that's what you started with. But instead, using question storming, which actually works much better with the brain than brainstorming does, if you are to, say, start with a statement, so would say there's a perfect product out there or, um, you know, we need more customers, then you can attack that with questions and to say, do we need more customers? Who says we need more customers? What's the right type of customer? Do the customers that we already have, like, are they, is there more potential there? Are there other products or services that they could buy? Should we just be cross-selling the people that already know about us? Do we need to retain people that have been leaving or do we need to find new people? Is there an existing market that we can be in or should we be uh, branching into something else? As you start to attack that statement which most people would agree. I talk about these as I call them known truths, you know, something that everybody would say, yeah, we need more customers. Everyone agrees with that or change is hard. Everyone agrees with that. And then you start to attack it with questions and you realize it's not necessarily true and it can be really holding you back because you just believe this and don't even look, you know, start poking holes in it. And when you realize your competition probably has those same known truths. If you're able to attack them, come up with a different and more unique question and really get at the root of the problem that exists, it allows you to differentiate in a way that you're finding the real problem that needs to be solved and the behaviors that would tie into that so that you can stand out from your competition and really resonate with whatever audience you're going after. This is really rich in info and insights because this could help sm small business owners as well as big business owners to mm -hmm. reflect and question their thinking re regarding marketing and when you were talking about they can differentiate their business like how can especially small businesses with a tiny budget for marketing differentiate their businesses using behavior economics so many ways. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, you know, the easy thing to say is like, you should definitely, my book is set up to be an applied sort of a guide that you can go in kind of step by step and really be using a lot of these concepts. And I have a lot of small businesses that are, um, you know, clients, customers that I work with. And it's very important to me to help them so that they don't fade into the background as large firms are able to hire behavioral economists and they are not. So the book is very much, and the podcast, you know, all of what I do while I do work with global corporations, I also try to make sure there's a lot in there for small business to be able to apply because that's important to me for one. And so when you're looking at it using something like question storming or reframing the problem that you're looking at, there are many concepts within the behavioral sciences that you can just start applying without needing a big budget. And one of my favorites that I think is just really easy to start with, and it's why it's the first concept introduced in my book, is framing. And this is the concept of how you say something matters much more than what you are saying. And so looking at different ways of saying something can impact whether someone buys it or finds it valuable or not. My favorite example of this would be if you imagine you're 
going to the store to buy some ground beef and there are two different stacks, you know, they're exactly the same, but one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other as 10% fat. Which one do you want to buy? I've asked this question to thousands of people around the world and overwhelmingly almost everybody agrees that 90% fat free sounds way better and that's the one that they would want. It's exactly the same, but your brain hears it differently based on how that is presented. And so if you can just look into your own materials and say, you know, is there anywhere that you are communicating in a 10% fat way that you could just flip that frame and instead be talking in 90% fat free terms. And even beyond that, kind of even better is if anywhere in your industry where everyone is talking 10% fat sort of term, and you can be the one person that starts saying 90% fat free, you're not necessarily having to change what you do. You don't have to change your products or promotion, but you can reframe slightly to make a difference. And to show an example that's not related to ground beef, because I know that most people don't sell that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A couple of the things that I recommend that are pretty easy that anyone can implement. uh, So is this transition from if to when uh, is one spot. So most of the time people will say, well, if you're interested, let me know. If you want to move forward, let me know. If instead of saying if you switch to a when statement, it's taking advantage of realize and taking advantage is maybe the wrong term, but it's using this knowledge of being a herding species that we like to be part of the group. And so you have this kind of implied sale or this action is going to take place. So instead of saying, if you're ready, if you want to move forward, let me know. You say, when you're ready, let's have a conversation, right? That So if to when makes a difference. And also transitioning from anyone to everyone. So when I talk on my podcast about, uh, you know, I have a guest who has a book, let's say, and the standard thing that most people will say is if anyone is interested in getting Susie's book, you should go into the show notes. There's a link there. So if anyone is interested, do this. Instead, I say for everyone who's interested, the book is waiting there for you. So everyone, you get to feel like part of this larger collective. Everyone's going to get the book for everyone like me that's doing that. Um, And so that, simple shift. And again, when you're ready, it's there waiting for you for everyone that wants it feels very different than if anybody wants a book, you can go get it. So for everyone who is interested in getting Melina's Palmer's book, it will be in the link in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in the same way, I do the same, but when it comes to like booking meetings, like a lot of people, they say, you know, I'm not available and stuff like that. What I do is I gave them two options. Like, mm-hmm. would you like us to meet on Friday 4 p.m. or on Tuesday 10 a.m.? And it right. helps a lot. Yeah, giving something to help get that conversation going is really important. And it gets you out of this constant um 
back and forth. A friend of mine, her name is Nikki Rausch, and she is an expert in sales. And she calls this the go fish method, right? So where you say, hey, like, do you want to meet? Yeah, I'd like to meet. Well, when works for you? Uh, I don't know. Are you available Monday? Oh, no, I don't have anything Monday. And then like, okay, what about Tuesday? Oh, no, not Tuesday, right? Fish go fish until and it takes <laughs> forever to get through this back and forth uh, instead of, you know, being able to make it easy and reduce the friction. We also, while we like to think that a lot of choice is what people want and that helps us to, we can make the best decisions when we have tons and tons of choices. Actually, when there are too many options, we have this paralysis that happens. This is called the paradox of choice. And so, when you have this open-ended meeting opportunity, it feels like to say, well, let me know what works for you and I can be available. I'm helping them. I'm letting them be in the driver's seat. But if you leave it open like that, there's so many things to go and like, where do I even start? Do they want to meet with me in a week? Do they want to meet with me in three weeks? What does my schedule look like? What about theirs? I have to go evaluate. And you can just constantly put it off because it feels like too much effort. If you instead give someone a couple of options, I'll usually do, you know, three time spans to say, you know, I can do Tuesday between 10 and four, you know, Wednesday from nine to 10, you know, blah, blah. Is there a time span in there? Do you have 30 minutes in one of those spans that works for you? Someone can go in and then check and say, or for your example, like, okay, well, no, Tuesday at 10 doesn't work for me. Uh, but I can do Wednesday at 10, you know, it helps to see like this often available at 10 AM probably. So when do I have that on my calendar? It just helps to start the process to where you're able to make a little shift. And another real important framing example that I give. So I did the, if, when, the anyone, everyone, the other is when you can change things from a statement to a question, our brains are really wired to want to answer questions when we're presented with them. So if you end your email with, if you want to go ahead and set up a meeting, let me know, period there's no need to take an action that can just sit and basically you will be ghosted <laughs> more often than not. Whereas instead you say, here are some times which one of those works best. And then people feel inclined to answer a question or, you know, does one of those work for you? And then they're able to say, you know, no, that doesn't, but here's this other option. So if you really want someone to respond to whatever you're sending in an email, ending on a question will make it much more likely that they will. Oh, that's really interesting. That's a good trick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you know it's something where you go, uh, oh, like, you know, I get a lot of this type of request and I know that most people don't get past, you know, asking for whatever this is. I want them to do a little bit of work. You know, sometimes we have those types of conversations versus putting so much on ourselves. If you end those in a statement, you know, most, a lot of people will just sort of let it fall by the wayside and only the people that are really ready to take on the project or whatever it is, will jump in regardless of how you end that, uh, those emails. So if you say, Hey, let me know when you're ready, I I'm here for you. And then a lot of people will just kind of fall <laughs> out of, uh, that process, but those that really care will then do it. That's a good way to kind of sift through that, that emails. If you get a lot of that. 100%. And of course, people should know 
the answer in advance, which, which should be a yes. And this just reminded me of the Socratic method. I believe you are familiar with when he used to, to, to preach on Athena and he was trying to persuade people. He used to ask questions, like lure questions in order to get to the real questions he wants to ask people. And each question was like a building question to the one after that and trying just to get people to say yes, 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 yes. And what often happens is that people end up contradicting themselves. Mm -hmm. He makes his own point by doing that. I, I believe a lot of people got inspired by his Socratic method to, to use it in sales, in marketing, like even in politics. Yeah, um, and just asking more questions. I, I'm always a fan of asking more questions. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. So prior you were talking about priming and now we talked about framing. What is the difference between priming, framing and anchoring? Because a lot of people, they believe it's the same thing. Right, yeah. So... The thing about a lot of these concepts is, while it would be really great to be able to say something like, this is only framing and there is nothing else at play and this is the one thing we have to use and we are, you know, it's the only concept that matters and nothing else is involved. Because our brains are very complex, there's a lot happening at any given time. There is some gray area between some of these, and often you have multiple concepts at play. So an example with anchoring, just to give a definition, I guess a little bit of the example for that would be uh, another of my favorite studies, which was done in a grocery store, as many of these are. And you have two different end cap displays that are for Snickers. The one says Snickers bars buy them for your freezer. The other says Snickers bars buy 18 for your freezer, of which most people can agree that 18 is a lot of Snickers bars and more than what most people are buying at any given time. And so if you were creating that advertisement, if you were, you know, marketing for Mars Wrigley, you'd probably say, well, like, I don't want to be on the hook for this arbitrary number and someone's going to ask how I came up with it. And I don't want to have to um, explain any of that. And so, you know, but them is actually unlimited and people could get a hundred Snickers if they wanted and your logical brain's trying to validate something you feel better about uh, that feels more comfortable to have that kind of vague term like them. And it may not feel like there would be that big of a difference, but actually what this study found was that there was a 38% increase in sales when the word when the number 18 was used instead of the word them. And it's because it creates this anchor of a high number. So when we go with them, in this case is actually kind of a fancy word for zero. And if you even notice <laughs> what's going on when you see this ad, you know, maybe you get two Snickers or three or something. Uh, if we give you the benefit of the doubt to say that them actually inspired you. But when you see 18, that's much more likely where your subconscious has these rules it uses to make decisions, but it might say, hmm, like, this is weird. Like, I don't have a rule for that. Like, we must have been buying Snickers wrong all these years. You know, we need to get more than what we normally would. But you'd probably say something to yourself like, you know, 18, I'm way better than everybody else. I don't need 18 Snickers bars. I'll just get six. And so that high anchor changed the way you were thinking about 
the number that you decide to buy. So the anchor essentially acts as a prime in that it puts that number into your brain right before the decision is made, and it can impact your choice in that way. The same concept is applied when people buy much more when something is labeled as 10 for $10 versus a dollar each. And the way that that is presented is a reframe. So 10 for $10 is the same thing as $1 each in many cases, but you are framing it slightly differently using an anchor that acts as a prime to nudge the behavior that you are trying to get. And in the case of the Snickers example, there's also just a slightly different question that's being asked behind the statement of these advertisements, similar to that if then. So when you have the word them, you are essentially asking the question of, do you want to buy Snickers bars? In the case where 18 is there, it's this implied sale. And the question that's being asked is this, how many do you want to buy? Which is a slightly different question, but again, it hits the brain a little bit differently in a way that's really important when it comes to that buying behavior. And so all the concepts of framing, priming, and anchoring are working together to help shape that one teeny tiny moment of an experience. I love it because a lot a lot of people they I don't know why we have this fantasy of trying to find one way to explain everything like what are trying to do a theory for for everything and even for the biases like as you said there is no one bias that is working and others are now working at the same time. So it, we have, like, even for the example with the, the sneakers, somehow I saw the partitioning bias there as well. Mm, yeah. So w- why do we have this fantasy? Like, we are trying to really make it logical to just have one bias and explain it using only one bias. Well, I think it is, you know, it goes back to the way that the brain is really constructed anyway and how it works. So those, the subconscious rules of the brain, it would be nice, you know, on some level we say, you know, we wish we could use more of the conscious brain and have more decisions being made from that space. But really we, the rules that the subconscious uses to make decisions is because it's able to speed things up and be more efficient. We couldn't survive as a species if we had to evaluate everything on that conscious cognitive level. Not only would we be totally paralyzed and it would take forever to do anything, it also would use too much energy and we couldn't consume enough calories to survive. So there's a lot of important reasons why the brain is set up in the way that it is. But because the subconscious likes predictability, because it's making decisions based on what has worked before. It wants to know what's coming next and be able to set up these, the simplest possible rule to apply in any given uh, context or state. So if everyone is running in that direction, I better run in that direction too, (laughs) because there's probably something scary coming at us from the other side. And I'm going to run first and ask questions later because those who uh, say, oh, I bet there's not a lion over there. They got eaten and they're gone. So we don't have to worry about them. Yeah. Uh, So we want those really simple rules. So 
the subconscious wants them so that it can continue to be making more decisions and putting things into these little boxes. If you have a really simple, that sort of silver bullet solution to say, well, if we always do it exactly like this, it will work every single time. It's helping the brain to use its subconscious rules more often, not have to trigger and have the conscious brain doing things. And, you know, at the end of the day, our brains are also pretty lazy and they like to use these rules to, um, do this, you know, the simplest way of making a choice. And so if you have a bunch of concepts that could come into play, it's just not as appealing, uh, as it would be to just say, you know, like I said, silver bullet versus having to take the time to evaluate and understand the true problem and then determine which concepts are going to apply, apply, and then start to test them to see what really works versus what a study said should work and, and things like that. So it's not for everyone, but if you want to stand out from your competition and be more effective, yeah, you kind of have to be in that space. And I mean, perhaps that's why there are consultants like myself that can help to do this for businesses so they don't have to do it themselves. This is really profound because it's interesting from the perspective that we can learn from it and we can make peace with it in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of consulting, the economy has seen a, a, ch- a shift within the last two decades and things are going more into the internet spectrum. How can e-commerce businesses with no store like where their customers can't experience biases in reality as we know it, but more on the virtual side, how can they harness the power of behavior science? The the good thing is, you know, even, you know, in a virtual space, there are many ways to practice just even like we talked about framing, right? So the way you present a message and the really great thing about being in a digital space is that you can test incredibly easily. So if you say you want to test colors or of different um, buttons, or you want to test out the fonts, or you want to test the way that you frame a question of when you're Um, encouraging someone to take an action or not, or the headline, you know, those are all ways to be practicing framing and you can be running the test in the background to see if something was more effective for emails or on your website or that advertisement that you were running. You also have opportunities to segment in a way that is more difficult if you're doing mass forms of advertising, like, you know, television commercials or something where you you know, just everyone has to see the billboard regardless of who they are. The only thing you're really um, able to, um, you know, segment on for an actual billboard on the road is location. And you don't really know who all is there, but you can do, you know, Facebook ads or through, you know, Google or whatever that you can have be very targeted and understand who you're talking to and be able to implement some of these behavioral things much more narrowly. Uh, So when you know the change you're trying to make and who you're talking to, you can focus just on them, which is great. Um, But you can also integrate imagery into websites. The best thing that you can be using is trying to trigger 
uh, what are called mirror neurons, which is really helpful to use in something like video. So if you do have a product, let's say that you want people to be buying, uh, but they can't physically touch it, but say it's a, um, a, a really fuzzy blanket, um, or if you were to say it was, uh, I, I've had a client that sold weighted blankets, that could be a good example. And you had to like tie the weighted part to the blanket part when it came in the box. And, you know, there are instructions about it, but like I explained to her is you want to have those sort of unboxing videos where someone's opening up uh, what they received, actually laying it out, tying the things down, pressing the blanket the against their skin and say, oh, it's so soft. It's amazing. I love the way that this feels and what a lovely color to be talking about and experiencing the item in video. We have those mirror neurons that allow us to essentially experience it along with someone, which then makes it easier for us to take the action moving forward. This is uh, when you watch videos and they have the like click subscribe and you watch the little arrow move over and click the subscribe button. And it feels like it's really stupid that we're having to see that or people have to say it, but it's because it activates those mirror neurons and makes it easier for us to take an action. Uh, this is the same reason why if you've ever seen someone get a paper cut and it's just this excruciating, you can feel it yourself. You know, you maybe <laughs> listeners cringed at the idea when I just said watching someone get a paper cut uh, because you can feel it almost. Yeah. And that's those mirror neurons in action. Exactly. When you were talking about all of that, it reminded me about the part on your book when you were talking about uh, smart literary mm -hmm. who found a way to nudge people to recycle their their trash and they started testing that in movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what? the literary is a really one of my favorite examples. And so that's the, you know, I guess we're kind of coming full circle on that too, where I talk about it, where I said in question storming, most people would say, you know, change is hard. And everyone yeah. just sort of accepts that. It's a known truth for many people. But it doesn't have to be if you understand some of these rules of the brain and can work with them. And so in the case of the literary, they decided that they were going to help people to throw away and properly sort their garbage every time. And if I was to tell you that's your new job, like your career is to make sure everyone in the entire world <laughs> throws away their garbage properly every single time, uh, you probably think that that's like, well, the rest of my life is done. Like I have nothing else I'm going to do because gosh, I hate my job. Yeah. feels like an impossible task, but what they did is they turned litter into lottery tickets, which is why it has the name of the littery. And so if people do properly throw away and sort their trash, they are entered into win a prize in the lottery. And in testing in the movie theaters, which if anyone remembers what it's like to go to a movie, it's one of the grossest places ever. People just <laughs> leave everything on the ground and it's really gross. But what they found in these four movie theaters across Sweden, and they had um, over an entire month, and they had 100% compliance of every single person properly throwing away and sorting their garbage without having to be told, without having to ask. They knew what to do. 
but until they were properly motivated with that nudge of the right behavior to help them make that decision, it didn't really matter. It wasn't worth it to throw something in the right spot or to have that little thought. And in that case, it was only a 5,000 euro prize, which is still a lot. But in the case of the literary, where they're working with, you know, municipalities and you could be winning millions if you properly put that bottle in the recycling where before you might've walked by, you know, you see a bottle on the ground and you think, Ugh, people are disgusting. I would never do that, but you aren't really, there's no reason for you to bend down and pick it up for a lot of people. Whereas if you look and you say, Hey, like people are disgusting and like I could win a million dollars if I throw this away, it's worth it to make that little effort to pick up the bottle and and throw it away. And people are less likely to drop something because they might want to, they want the chance of winning as well. So we are knowing that humans are motivated by lotteries for all sorts of reasons. And to use that to help nudge the behavior is something that the literary did to make it so that change was actually very easy when you pull the right levers. And one of the pieces of this that's not spelled out really in the book, but I think is important for businesses to understand is we often have to get out of our own way in thinking that people have to be doing something for the same reason that we are in whatever we're asking them to do. So someone with the literary, they may have the mission of, you know, wanting to clean up the world and reducing greenhouse gases and all these other you know, pollution and saving um, whales and sea turtles and whatever else. And they are, you know, astounded by how big garbage island is or whatever, right? But you can either make it so that everybody has to know and care about it for exactly the same reason that you do, and they might not change their behavior. Or do you care more about their behavior changing and the reason isn't one that you are as excited about? So, in the, that case of the literary, people are changing their behavior because they're motivated by something that's going to help them. And so at the end of the day, is it more important to you that they're doing it for the reason that you want them to, or that they are going to uh, take the action and just throw the thing away, even though it's for a slightly different reason? So being able to separate and really think about that your customer doesn't have to do something for the same reason that motivates you is actually surprisingly hard for people in business to do because we get so excited about what we're working on and think everyone should be as passionate as we are. But that's often not what's going to motivate their behavior. Absolutely. And, you know, when you were talking about this, I was smiling like a fool because for two reasons. First one is... Robert Cialdini in his book when he was talking about his friend who owns a business, uh, I think it was a jewelry business, and mm -hmm. instead of decreasing the price and offering discounts, she left on a vacation and one of the, the staff increased the price. And when she came back, she, she noticed that all the items that have been unsold for months, they were sold. And the second thing why it reminded me of Rory Sutherland's is because he always says that just because you offer discounts, you are going to increase the demand for it and you can increase it by increasing the price. And honestly, I hate discounts. 
I hate when businesses offer discounts to get new customers. Mm-hmm. I have this hate relationship with discounts. And I'm curious, how can we benefit from behavioral science to create reward systems to get more loyal customers? Yeah, they're, um, you know, so including something like surprise and delight, which has a chapter in the book is something that can help to increase loyalty. You know, delight is a really important driver in that space. And, you know, I think one of the other things I, you mentioned small businesses. So one of the things I see most often that and the reason people feel they need discounts is because they're not comfortable with their own prices. And that's okay. For most people, you know, setting your own price, it can feel a little bit uncomfortable. And because often you wouldn't pay for what you do for the amount that you're asking. And that's because you're not your ideal customer. And so what I see a lot is that people will then say, you know, something along the lines of, well, here's this thing and it's, you know, it's $500, but, and I know that may f- feel like a lot, but it's really valuable and, you know, you should, and I just raised the prices. So if you want, I could do it for like mm, 350 or, you know, maybe something else. And if you, but if that doesn't feel good, you know, we, it's always refundable. You're like apologizing and priming somebody to think that it's too expensive and no wonder they feel like it's really expensive and they aren't getting as much value because you're portraying this real lack of confidence in your own pricing. And so people will say to me, like, well, everyone always asks me for a discount. And it's probably because you're doing something to prime them to feel that it's not worth whatever you're charging. And so if instead you're able to have the confidence and say, you know, it's $500 and, you know, most people choose to do two sessions, would you like to do that as well? that's using our herding. We're confident. Lots of people do this. We've framed it with the question at the end. You know, there are just a few little tweaks in the way that you talk about it, but having that confidence and just then accepting the price, feeling good about it and refraining from, um, talking in or offering discounts. What I say, if you're feeling like you have to use it as a crutch, which is what most businesses do, then don't force yourself not to offer discounts unless there's a real strategic reason why it's providing some sort of a benefit. I love it. I know we we are about to hit almost one hour. And honestly, I wish we had more time because this episode is really amazing. Melina, if you could suggest three books related to behavioral science and how can small businesses benefit from them what would they be well it feels like cheating to say my own book but (laughs) it is one that it's really the only one in the space that exists that is really written for people to use as an applied guide of how to go about using it so i would say that mine would go in there and it's called what your customer wants and can't tell you um If you're looking to, you know, you already mentioned, I would say, uh, Cialdini's book, Influence. Uh, There's a new expanded version that came out here in 2021 that includes a seventh principle of persuasion. And it's a really, he has just really 
concrete usable examples that are related to business that help people to use um, that information. So I would say influence uh, by Cialdini is a great one. And then my third, which is uh, maybe seemingly random, but it, it truly is my favorite book. And it's called A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. It's a little bit of an older book, uh, but it's where I first learned about question storming and it's about innovation and how to think about problems differently and finding your beautiful question that you want to try to find answers for. And so I think everyone can be much better off in business if they ask better questions. So I would say a more beautiful question is the third one on my list. Amazing. And what would be your three podcast suggestions? Um, so <laughs> again, uh, the brainy business podcast. is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's my favorite. <laughs> so I would recommend my own podcast again there for that. Uh, I would also say, so if you have a lot of marketers, I really do like online marketing made easy, which is Amy Porterfield's podcast. I think she does a really nice job of having these like bite-sized tips and helping people with building lists and engaging with people. So that would be high up on the list there. And, oh, um... I think if you're looking for other behavioral science, see, I talk to so many people. Um, you know what I'll say is uh, the behavior business um, by Richard Chataway, um, and he has a book by the same name. He's the CEO of BVA Nudge Unit UK. Uh, he has some really good applied examples and things as well. So give a shout out to Richard Chataway for that. Absolutely. And I think I have, yeah, I think I have assisted one of the interviews in the, I think the club was on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. a thousand and one story. Oh, yeah. Um, Prakash is. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he and Louise um, had started the. Um, Behavioral Science Club on LinkedIn, which is a really great place. It's a free um, environment, essentially, for people. They bring in great speakers. Rory Sutherland has been there. Cass Sunstein came in. Um, and just so many wonderful, wonderful people. And like you said, potentially Richard I, Chataway, I think, did one as well. So, yeah, lots of great people in there. Absolutely. So, Melina, I have two last questions. Okay. Who would you recommend me to have as a guest on the podcast oh so many <laughs> i guess if you haven't had <laughs> richard chataway you should talk to him he's good people for sure <laughs> definitely i will try to reach out to him and see if he would like to be guest on my podcast yeah so my last question is what does growth means to you i think growth is about evolution and being open to new experiences. So I end every episode of my podcast by telling people to be thoughtful. And that's really what everything I talk about is about. And I think being thoughtful about the world around you, being open to new experiences, tr trying new things, it's all really centered around 
personal growth and helping others to grow as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Melina, for being a guest on the podcast. And how can people reach out to you? Yeah, so you can just go to thebrainybusiness.com is a really easy way. Uh, my book is there. The podcast is there. Everything linked in that setup. Uh, the podcast is the same name of The Brainy Business. And you can find me on all the social channels as The Brainy Biz, B-I-Z. My book, as mentioned, I uh, said the name at least once, but it's What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, which is available pretty much anywhere that you buy books. And again, there are links on my website, thebrainybusiness.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Melina.